0: Chapter 10, Section 2 of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital, a critical analysis of capitalist production, Volume 1, by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels part 3 the production of absolute surplus value chapter 10 the working day section 2 the greed for surplus labor manufacturer and boyard capital has not invented surplus labor wherever a part of society possesses the monopoly of the means of production the laborer free or not free must add to the working time necessary for his own maintenance an extra working time in order to produce the means of subsistence for the owners of the means of production, whether this proprietor be the Athenian Chalos Chacatos, Etruscan Theocrat, Civis Romanus, Norman Baron, American slave owner, Wallachian Boyard, modern landlord or capitalist. Two footnotes First Footnote Those who labor in reality feed both the pensioners, called the rich and themselves. Edmund Burke, 1 c. p. 2. Second footnote. Niebuhr, in his Roman history, says very naively, It is evident that works like the Etruscan, which in their ruins astound us, presuppose in little states lords and vassals. Sismondi says far more to the purpose that Brussels lace presupposes wage-lords and wage-slaves. End of footnotes. It is, however, clear that in any given economic formation of society, where not the exchange value but the use value of the product predominates, surplus labour will be limited by a given set of wants, which may be greater or less, and that here no boundless thirst for surplus labour arises from the nature of the production itself. Hence, in antiquity, overwork becomes horrible only WHEN THE OBJECT IS TO OBTAIN EXCHANGE VALUE IN ITS SPECIFIC INDEPENDENT MONEY FORM, IN THE PRODUCTION OF GOLD AND SILVER. COMPULSORY WORKING TO DEATH IS HERE THE RECOGNIZED FORM OF OVERWORK. ONLY READ DIODORUS SICULUS. FOOTNOTE. ONE CANNOT SEE THESE UNFORTUNATES, IN THE GOLD MINES BETWEEN EGYPT, ETHIOPIA, AND ARABIA, WHO CANNOT EVEN HAVE THEIR BODIES CLEAN, OR THEIR NAKEDNESS CLOTHED, WITHOUT PITYING THEIR MISERABLE LOT there is no indulgence no forbearance for the sick the feeble the aged for woman's weakness all must forced by blows work on until death puts an end to their sufferings and their distress diodorus siculus book two chapter thirteen and a footnote still these are exceptions in antiquity but as soon as people whose production still moves within the lower forms of slave labour corvée labour etc are drawn into the whirlpool of an international market dominated by the capitalistic mode of production, the sale of their products, the sale of their products for export becoming their principal interest, the civilized horrors of overwork are grafted on the barbaric horrors of slavery, serfdom, etc. Hence, the negro labor in the southern states of the American Union preserved something of a patriarchal character so long as production was chiefly directed to immediate local consumption. But in proportion, as the export of cotton became of vital interest to these states, the overworking of the negro, and sometimes the using up of his life in seven years of labor, became a factor in a calculated and calculating system. It was no longer a question of obtaining from him a certain quantity of useful products. It was now a question of production of surplus labor itself. So was it also with the corvée, e.g. in the Danubian principalities. Now, Romania. The comparison of the greed for surplus labor in the Danubian principalities with the same greed in English factories has a special interest, because surplus labor in the corvée has an independent and palpable form. Suppose the working day consists of six hours of necessary labor and six hours of surplus labor. Then the free laborer gives the capitalist every week six times six or thirty-six hours of surplus labor. It is the same as if he worked three days in the week for himself, and three days in the week gratis for the capitalist. But this is not evident on the surface. Surplus labour and necessary labour glide one into the other. I can, therefore, express the same relationship by saying, e.g., that a labourer in every minute works thirty seconds for himself and thirty for the capitalist, etc. It is otherwise with a corvée. The necessary labour which the Wallachian peasant does for his own maintenance is distinctly marked off from his surplus labour on behalf of the boyard, the one he does on his own field, the other on the signorial estate. Both parts of the labour time exist, therefore, independently, side by side one with the other. In the corvée the surplus labour is accurately marked off from the necessary labour. This, however, can make no difference with regard to the quantitative relation of surplus labor to necessary labor. Three days surplus labor in the week remain three days that yield no equivalent to the laborer himself, whether it be called the corvée or wage labor. But in the capitalist the greed for surplus labor appears in the straining after an unlimited extension of the working day, in the boyard more simply in a direct hunting after days of corvée. Footnote: That which follows refers to the situation in the Romanian provinces before the change effected since the Crimean War. And the footnote. In the Danubian principalities, the corvée was mixed up with rents in kind and other appurtenances of bondage, but it formed the most important tribute paid to the ruling class. Where this was the case, the corvée rarely arose from serfdom. Serfdom, much more frequently, on the other hand, took origin from the corvée footnote. This holds likewise for Germany, and especially for Prussia, east of the Elbe. In the fifteenth century the German peasant was nearly everywhere a man who, whilst subject to certain rents paid in produce and labour, was otherwise at least practically free. The German colonists in Brandenburg, Pomerania, Silesia, and eastern Prussia were even legally acknowledged as free men. The victory of the nobility in the Peasants' War put an end to that. Not only were the conquered South German peasants again enslaved, from the middle of the sixteenth century, the peasants of Eastern Prussia, Brandenburg, Pomerania, and Silesia, and soon after, the free peasants of Schleswig-Holstein were degraded to the condition of serfs. Maurer, fronhofe fourth volume. Meitzen, Der Boden des Preussischen Staats. Hansen, Leibeigenschaft in Schleswig-Holstein. F. E. End of footnote. This is what took place in the Romanian provinces. Their original mode of production was based on community of the soil, but not in the Slavonic or Indian form. Part of the land was cultivated in severalty as freehold by the members of the community. Another part, agar publicus, was cultivated by them in common. The products of this common labor served partly as a reserve fund against bad harvests and other accidents partly as a public store for providing the costs of war, religion, and other common expenses. In course of time, military and clerical dignitaries usurped, along with the common land, the labor spent upon it. The labor of the free peasants on their common land was transformed into corvée for the thieves of the common land. This corvée soon developed into a servile relationship, existing in point of fact, not in point of law, until Russia, the liberator of the world, made it legal under pretence of abolishing serfdom. The code of the corvée, which the Russian general Kislev proclaimed in 1831, was of course dictated by the Boyards themselves. Thus Russia conquered with one blow the magnates of the Danubian provinces, and the applause of liberal cretins throughout Europe. According to the Règlement organique, as this code of the corvée is called, Every Wallachian peasant owes to the so-called landlord, besides a mass of detailed payments in kind, one, twelve days of general labour, two, one day of field labour, three, one day of wood-carrying, in all, fourteen days in the year. With deep insight into political economy, however, the working day is not taken in its ordinary sense, but as the working day necessary to the production of an average daily product, and that average daily product is determined in so crafty a way that no cyclops would be done with it in twenty-four hours. In dry words, the Reglement itself declares with true Russian irony that by twelve working days one must understand the product of the manual labour of thirty-six days, by one day of field labour three days, and by one day of wood-carrying in like manner three times as much, in all forty-two corvée days. To this had to be added the so-called Yobagi, service due to the lord for extraordinary occasions. In proportion to the size of its population, every village has to furnish annually a definite contingent to the Yobagi. This additional corvée is estimated at fourteen days for each Wallachian peasant. Thus the prescribed corvée amounts to fifty-six working days yearly. But the agricultural year in Wallachia numbers in consequence of the severe climate only 210 days, of which 40 for Sundays and holidays, 30 on an average for bad weather, together 70 days, do not count. 140 working days remain. The ratio of the corvée to the necessary labour, 56 divided by 84, or 66 and two-thirds per cent gives a much smaller rate of surplus-value than that which regulates the labour of the English agricultural or factory labourer. This is, however, only the legally prescribed corvée. And, in a spirit yet more liberal than the English factory acts, the Réglement organique has known how to facilitate its own evasion. After it has made fifty-six days out of twelve, the nominal day's work of each of the fifty-six corvée days is again so arranged that a portion of it must fall on the ensuing day. In one day, e.g., must be weeded an extent of land which, for this work, especially in maize plantations, needs twice as much time. The legal day's work for some kinds of agricultural labour is interpretable in such a way that the day begins in May and ends in October. In Moldavia conditions are still harder, the twelve corvée days of the Règlement organique, cried a boyard drunk with victory, amount to 365 days in the year. Footnote. Further details are to be found in E. Histoire politique et sociale des Principautés Danubiens, Paris, 1855. And the footnote. If the Règlement organique of the Danubian provinces was a positive expression of the greed for surplus labour which every paragraph legalized, the English factory acts are the negative expression of the same greed. These acts curb the passion of capital for a limitless draining of labor power by forcibly limiting the working day by state regulations made by a state that is ruled by capitalist and landlord. Apart from the working class movement that daily grew more threatening, the limiting of factory labor was dictated by the same necessity which spread guano over the English fields. The same blind eagerness for plunder that in the one case exhausted the soil had, in the other, torn up by the roots, the living force of the nation. Periodical epidemics speak on this point as clearly as the diminishing military standard in Germany and France. In general and within certain limits, exceeding the medium size of their kind is evidence of the prosperity of organic beings. As to man, his bodily height lessens if his due growth is interfered with, either by physical or local conditions. In all European countries in which the conscription holds, since its introduction, the medium height of adult men, and generally their fitness for military service, has diminished. Before the Revolution, 1789, the minimum for the infantry in France was 165 centimeters. In 1818, Law of March 10th, 157. By the law of March 21, 1832, 156 centimeters. On the average, in France, more than half are rejected on account of deficient height or bodily weakness. The military standard in Saxony was in 1780, 178 centimeters. It is now 155. In Prussia, it is 157. According to the statement of Dr. Meyer in the Bavarian Gazette, May 9, 1862, the result of an average of nine years is, that in Prussia, out of 1,000 conscripts, 716 were unfit for military service, 317 because of deficiency in height, and 399 because of bodily defects. Berlin, in 1858, could not provide its contingent of recruits, and it was 156 men short. J. von Liebig, Die Chemie in ihre Anwendung auf Agricultur und Physiologie, 1862, 7th Edition, Volume 1, Pages 117 and 118, and a footnote. The Factory Act of 1850, now in force 1867, allows for the average working day ten hours, i.e. for the first five days twelve hours from six a.m. to six p.m., including half an hour for breakfast and an hour for dinner, and thus leaving ten and a half working hours, and eight hours for Saturday, from six a.m. to two p.m., of which half an hour is subtracted for breakfast. Sixty working hours are left, ten and a half for each of the first five days, seven and a half for the last. Footnote. The history of the Factory Act of 1850 will be found in the course of this chapter, and a footnote. Certain guardians of these laws are appointed, factory inspectors, directly under the home secretary, whose reports are published half yearly by order of Parliament. They give regular and official statistics of the capitalistic greed for surplus labour. Let us listen for a moment to the factory inspectors. Footnote. I only touch here and there on the period from the beginning of modern industry in England to eighteen forty five for this period i refer the reader to die lage der arbeitenden klasse in england von Friedrich engels leipzig eighteen forty five how completely engels understood the nature of the capitalist mode of production is shown by the factory reports reports on mines etc that have appeared since eighteen forty five and how wonderfully he painted the circumstances in detail is seen on the most superficial comparison of his work with the official reports of the Children's Employment Commission, published 18 to 20 years later, 1863 to 1867. These deal especially with the branches of industry in which the Factory Acts had not, up to 1862, been introduced, in fact, are not yet introduced. Here, then, little or no alteration had been enforced, by authority, in the conditions painted by Engels. I borrow my examples chiefly from the free-trade period after 1849, that age of paradise of which the commercial travellers for the great firm of free-trade, blatant as ignorant, tell such fabulous tales. For the rest, England figures here in the foreground, because she is the classic representative of capitalist production, and she alone has a continuous set of official statistics of the things we are considering. End of footnote. Start of citation? The fraudulent mill-owner begins work a quarter of an hour, sometimes more, sometimes less, before 6 a.m., and leaves off a quarter of an hour, sometimes more, sometimes less, after 6 p.m. He takes five minutes from the beginning and from the end of the half-hour nominally allowed for breakfast, and ten minutes at the beginning and end of the hour nominally allowed for dinner. He works for a quarter of an hour, sometimes more, sometimes less, after 2 p.m. on Saturday. Thus his gain is, before 6 a.m., 15 minutes, after 6 p.m., 15 minutes, at breakfast time, 10 minutes, at dinner time, 20 minutes, for 1 day, 60 minutes, 5 days, 300 minutes, on Saturday, before 6 a.m., 15 minutes, at breakfast time, 10 minutes, after 2 p.m., 15 minutes, total for Saturday, 40 minutes, total weekly, 340 minutes or five hours and forty minutes weekly, which, multiplied by fifty working weeks in the year, allowing two for holidays and occasional stoppages, is equal to twenty-seven working days. End of quotation. Footnote. Suggestions, etc., by Mr. L. Horner, Inspector of Factories, in Factories Regulation Acts, ordered by the House of Commons to be printed, 9th August, 1859, pages 4 and 5. End of footnote. Start quote five minutes a day's increased work multiplied by weeks are equal to two and a half days of produce in the year end of quote. Footnote Reports of the Inspector of Factories for the Half Year, october eighteen fifty six, page thirty five and of footnote. Start of quote. An additional hour a day gained by small installments before 6 a.m., after 6 p.m., and at the beginning and end of the times nominally fixed for meals, is nearly equivalent to working thirteen months in the year. End of quote. Footnote. Reports, etc., 30th April, 1858, page 9. End of footnote. Crises during which production is interrupted, and the factories work short time, i.e. for only a part of the week, naturally do not affect the tendency to extend the working day. The less business there is, the more profit has to be made on the business done. The less time spent in work, the more of that time has to be turned into surplus labour time. Thus the factory inspectors report on the period of the crisis from 1857 to 1858. Start quote. It may seem inconsistent that there should be any overworking at a time when trade is so bad, but that very badness leads to the transgression by unscrupulous men that they get the extra profit of it. In the last half-year, says Leonard Horner, 122 mills in my district have been given up, 143 were found standing, yet overwork is continued beyond the legal hours. End of quote. Footnote. Reports, etc., 1C, page 10. End of footnote. Start, quote. For a great part of the time, says Mr. Hole, owing to the depression of trade, many factories were altogether closed, and a still greater number were working short time. I continue, however, to receive about the usual number of complaints that half or three-quarters of an hour in the day are snatched from the workers by encroaching upon the times professedly allowed for rest and refreshment. End of quote. Footnote. Reports, etc. L.C., Page twenty five. End of footnote. The same phenomenon was reproduced on a smaller scale during the frightful cotton crises from eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five. Footnote. Reports, etc., for the half year ending thirty April, eighteen sixty one. See Appendix number two. Reports, etc., thirty first October, eighteen sixty two. Pages seven, fifty two, fifty three. THE VIOLATIONS OF THE ACTS BECAME MORE NUMEROUS DURING THE LAST HALF-YEAR 1863. CONFORM REPORTS, ETC. ENDING 31st OF OCTOBER, 1863, PAGE 7. END A footnote. Start of quote. It is sometimes advanced by way of excuse, when persons are found at work in a factory, either at a meal hour or at some illegal time, that they will not leave the mill at the appointed hour, and that compulsion is necessary to force them to cease work cleaning their machinery, etc., especially on Saturday afternoons. But, if the hands remain in the factory after the machinery has ceased to revolve, they would not have been so employed if sufficient time had been set apart specially for cleaning, etc., either before 6 a.m., sick, or before 2 p.m. on Saturday afternoons. End of quote. Footnote. Reports, etc., October 31, 1860, page 23. With what fanaticism, according to the evidence of manufacturers given in courts of law, their hands set themselves against every interruption in factory labour, the following curious circumstance shows. In the beginning of June 1836 information reached the magistrates of Dewsbury, Yorkshire, that the owners of eight large mills in the neighbourhood of Batley had violated the factory acts. Some of these gentlemen were accused of having kept at work five boys between twelve and fifteen years of age, from six a.m. on Friday to four p.m. on the following Saturday, not allowing them any respite except for meals and one hour of sleep at midnight. And these children had to do this ceaseless labor of thirty hours in the shoddy hole, as the hole is called, in which the woollen rags are pulled in pieces, and where a dense atmosphere of dust, shreds, etc., forces even the adult workman to cover his mouth continually with handkerchiefs for the protection of his lungs. The accused gentlemen affirm, in lieu of taking an oath, as Quakers they were too scrupulously religious to take an oath, that they had, in their great compassion for the unhappy children, allowed them four hours for sleep, but the obstinate children absolutely would not go to bed. The Quaker gentlemen were mulcted in twenty pounds. Dryden anticipated these gentry foxful fraud and seeming sanctity that feared an oath but like the devil would lie that looked like lent and had the holy leer and durst not sin before he said his prayer End of footnote. Start of quote. the profit to be gained by it overworking in violation of the act appears to be to many a greater temptation than they can resist they calculate upon the chance of not being found out and where they see the small amount of penalty and costs which those who have been convicted have had to pay, they find that if they should be detected there will still be a considerable balance of gain. Footnote. Report, 31st of October, 1856, page 34. And a footnote. In cases where the additional time is gained by a multiplication of small thefts in the course of the day, there are insuperable difficulties to the inspectors making out a case. End of quote. Footnote, L. C. Page thirty-five, and a footnote. These small thefts of capital from the laborer's meal and recreation time, the factory inspectors also designate as petty pilferings of minutes, snatching a few minutes, or as the laborers technically called them, nibbling and cribbling at meal times. Footnotes, L. C. Page forty-eight, and a footnote. It is evident that in this atmosphere. The formation of surplus value by surplus labor is no secret. Start of quote. If you allow me, said a highly respectable master to me, to work only ten minutes in the day overtime, you put one thousand a year in my pocket. End of quote. Footnote. L.C. page 48. and of footnote. Start of quote. Moments are the elements of profit. End of quote. Footnote. Report of the inspectors, etc., 30th April, 1860, page 56, and a footnote. Nothing is from this point of view more characteristic than the designation of the workers who work full-time as full-timers, and the children under thirteen who are only allowed to work six hours as half-timers. The worker is here nothing more than personified labour-time. All individual distinctions are merged in those of full-timers and half-timers. Footnote. This is the official expression, both in the factories and in the reports. End of, footnote. End of part 3, chapter 10, section 2.